Good evening, everyone, and good afternoon to some of you on the West Coast of the United States, and welcome to tonight's edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise. Restorative Justice on the Rise was founded in 2011, and we have had virtual councils with over 140 guest speakers varying across the field of restorative justice and, of course, peace-building related issues. A lot of times what we do here together is we focus mostly on the solutions and really bring light to the amazing work that people are doing in various fields relating to justice and like I mentioned beyond, um, bringing it from the individual to the collective and um, vice versa. And I'd just like to take a moment to acknowledge the Peace Alliance for their co-sponsorship of Restorative Justice on the Rise and to bring your attention to the fact that the Peace Alliance is holding an extraordinary conference in Washington, D.C. in just 21 days. And it will feature some wonderful speakers and a great networking uh, hotbed for people in peace building, restorative justice, and beyond. And speakers uh, will include Sylvia Borstein, um, the Peace Alliance's very own Heart Phoenix of the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding, and many other people uh, representing the field of justice, transformation, systemic reform, and transformation. So I invite you cordially to take a look at peacealliance.org for more information about that conference in Washington, D.C., and also to check out the great programs that the Peace Alliance offers besides co-sponsoring Restorative Justice on the Rise. There's a lot happening in your community even across the United States, we, we have action teams that um, mobilize around important and key uh, issues and solutions. So again, peacealliance.org. Now if you're interested in tuning in to any of those past speakers, including conversations with the likes of Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, and recently we had some extraordinary conversations with Maya Shenwar, who is the author of Lockdown, Locked Out, and also is the editor-in-chief of Truthout. That's the wonderful news media source, truthout.org. Um, as well as uh, last week, a conversation with the wonderful Dave, Dr. Dave Ragland of the Truth Telling Project. We had quite a conversation with him. So if you've never been with us in this virtual council, just a few quick notes about it before we go into an introduction of tonight's wonderful and honored guest, Jared Side. Um, I just want to make note that this is an interactive dialogue space. That means whether it's uh, before you come into the call itself, you can submit questions or make comments while you're in the registration process. Or if you prefer to take part in the actual live dialogue as such we are in now tonight with um, Jared's side, you may press 1 at any point during the conversation tonight on your telephone keypad, and that will cue you up for whatever comment or question you would like to pose. And it's a great way to have a sense of community, to hear stories, and to apply the conversation that we're going to be going into tonight with Jared. So you are warmly welcomed and invited to be a part of this community on a deeper level in whatever way you choose. I also would like to point your attention again to restorativejusticeontherise.org. That's where you can find the archives of all of the conversations we've had. Um, that's where you can pass them along. It's based in Creative Commons open source value, so there is no cost to listen and download and pass along those interviews. Same thing, same values with the um, interactive map, the clickable map where you can submit your organization to be listed on the United States North America based map. We're hoping in the future to have a bit more of an expansive listing given that there's so much great work happening in our world. But the United States is up and um, there are many resources state by state that you can tap into there. Again, restorativejusticeontherise.org. And really, it's my honor and pleasure, as always, to be with you here tonight as your host. 
I'll try and get out of the way as much as possible in guiding this conversation to the essentials with Jared, and I'm really looking forward to being with you all tonight. And I just wanted to say a few words to introduce Jared Side. He is the director for the Center for Council, and he has designed, piloted, and coordinated council-based programs in prisons, assisted living facilities, youth groups, and a variety of nonprofit and faith-based organizations, as well as social service agencies, including the Co-Mentoring Project for Emancipated Foster Youth, the Social Justice Council Project in partnership with the Angel Foundation, and the Prison Reentry Council Initiative with the support of the Nathan Cummings and JIB Foundation, in addition to the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. He has also coordinated, mentored, and facilitated council programs at 11 schools in Southern California, and he's led rites of passage retreats for a host of middle and high school youth, in addition to coordinating the LA-based Council Collaborative Initiative. He was coordinator of the nine-member leadership team that relaunched the Center for Council Practice Division of the Ojai Foundation, the antecedent of Center for Council. He also co-led the Rockefeller Foundation's Bellagio Conference on Integrating Council and SRM in California and Rwandan prisons, and was subsequently invited by the foundation to be a resident fellow at the Bellagio. He has been a presenter at several conferences and seminars, speaking on the integration of council into varied arenas. Side's educational background includes a BA with high honors from Brown University. And prior to his work with Center for Council, Side led successful careers in the entertainment industry and the corporate world. He is a member of the Zen Center of Los Angeles and a sixth cohort graduate of the chaplaincy program of Upaya Institute under the direction of Roshi Joan Halifax. So it's just a wonderful honor to have you here with us tonight, Jared. Um, thank you so much for taking the time tonight to speak with us about council. Thank you, Molly. It sounds exhausting. The <laughs> 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 way you describe all that, my goodness. Uh, gosh, I, I'm really grateful for the invitation, and I'm just so honored to be here. So, so much appreciation for what you're doing for the conversation that you're inviting and for the community that you've uh, magnetized around you. I think this is an extraordinarily important and generative conversation. Mm. And I just really appreciate the, um, the commitment and also the innovation around platforms like this to um, deepen and to broaden um, these critical conversations and this deep listening and bearing witness to a really unique moment, I think, in history. Mm. Well, we're going to definitely go into that unique moment here and the, the ground we cover tonight together. I can feel that. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to put a shout out really quickly to Leslie Neal, um, yeah. filmmaker Leslie Neal. And uh, her, some of her film work is just, all of her film work is extraordinary. And the one in particular that I'm thinking about that I'd like to reference for people who may not have heard about it yet is, um, of course, Unlikely Friends. If you haven't seen that film, it's incredibly moving. And I know that um, she, she introduced you and I, Jared, which I'm mm -hmm. very grateful for. So, mm -hmm. um, but let, let's start out, if we could, tonight by going back into your journey, Jared, and, um, and cultivating that point where you felt um, maybe an inspiration an experience that led you in the direction that um, brought you to where you are now at present moment with Center for Council? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think it, for me it comes back to the story. I think it's always been so compelling storytelling for me personally. I just loved my, my Dr. Seuss books growing up and I feel like I, I grew up with a sense of how magical and transformative the story could be. It looks like um, we have lost Jared on the line. So please hang in there with us for just a moment. While he is getting back on, I would just love to share a little bit more about the Center for Council. 
and uh, direct you to the website, which is centerforcouncil.org. And I was going to mention it later on, and we'll remind everyone, they have some incredible trainings that involve um, Council 1, 2, and 3 trainings, as well as Council in Schools. They offer also a professional development series. And one of their Council trainings, in, in this case Council 1, an introduction to Council, is going to be happening in Pacific Palisades, California, and that's October 17th and 18th of 2015. And um, that will be, again, happening in Pacific Palisades, California. They have other trainings that they're offering. And um, I'll just share a little bit more about the other trainings as well. Uh, there's one coming up in February. That's February 5th through 7th of 2016. And that's going to be at the Ojai Foundation. And then, of course, other trainings in 2016. And, and they share a little bit of background about it and saying that Anywhere dialogue takes place, the practice of counsel can deepen and enhance the experience. This age-old practice of listening empathetically and sharing heartfelt stories in a circle is used in classrooms and boardrooms, prisons and playgrounds, by couples, families, and communities. It says experience counsel and learn ways to use it to enrich all your relationships, both personal and professional. The, the weekend workshop offers an introduction to counsel practice guided by two experienced trainers. And so we have Jared back with us finally here. And um, sorry you got <laughs> cut off there, Jared. Welcome back. Yeah, sorry about you that. Were, Thank you, were you so much. About your, <laughs> it's okay. I was just sharing about some of the trainings that are, are coming up. You're very kind. Please continue to share the story. Of, you left off at about the point where you weren't you weren't quite there yet about how um, life brought you to Center for Counsel. If there was an inspiration, if there was a, a, a particular event in particular um, yeah. that brought you. To where yeah, you so are. I guess I was kind of I was kind of rambling on about my own uh, experience in the entertainment Story. industry. Yeah. Yeah. Are, so, um, can you hear me okay now? You sound great. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You know, we um, we experienced this moment in Los Angeles where there was an enormous uh, uh, outburst of um, violence and um, expression of uh, deep pain around the injustice around the Rodney King um, affair and the aftermath. And schools were a really tough place to be. And I I had a daughter in a school that felt like it was um, in great need of care. That it was potentially explosive. And um, we were longing for some way to find community. And we found our way to a bunch of educators who were working with this practice of counsel, having been taught by the folks at the OI Foundation. And again, this is, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, I guess, or maybe more than that. And um, what happened when counsel came to the, the open school was just an extraordinary transformation. I, I was just blown away. I got to see a community really find its way to compassion and care. And I got to see uh, stakeholders that really were just used to being oppositional and not trusting each other, uh, moving in a direction of real um, kind of anger and defensiveness, shift to something that really put the, our common values and our shared uh, love uh, and care for our children at the center. So the community really emerged around this practice that was permeating board meetings and staff meetings and community meetings. But I, I think, you know, for me personally, when my daughter came back the more fourth grade class and, and, uh, and, and spoke like a writer, she spoke with a voice that I hadn't heard before. I could hear her making sense of the interconnectedness of her community. When she talked about herself and where she is in her life and her family and her friends and why the bully bully is and why the shy one is shy and what's happening at home and what's happening in the lives of the people around her. I felt like I was watching this practice, um, a simple practice of coming together and sharing stories in a good way. I was watching it transform my daughter, um, really enabling her to find her voice and also transforming the community. And I think my own um, kind of misgivings about the entertainment industry was really a good fit with seeing the emergence of an incredibly powerful practice 
of embodying compassion in community. And it uh, was very clear that that was going to be, you know, my life path. Um, what was um, being held for the Ojai Foundation was uh, starting to really enter into the educational sphere, and I think some uh, folks in a couple of the independent schools were um, really working with this, a school called Crossroads and a few others. Um, but at the time of the, um, the riots and the aftermath, Los Angeles Unified School District was really looking to find practices that could really uh, bring peace and mm -hmm. um, engagement. And so the council um, program that we brought to the open school um, really inspired a bunch of other programs. We uh, wound up with 65 public schools in which these council practices were really changing the nature of community. And um, as schools turned more and more towards this practice, um, we began to see its application in other systems that were in great need of compassion-based practices. Uh, and it was you know, um, uh, clear to us, some of us that um, certainly criminal justice, medicine, um, environmental systems that were um, in great need required this kind of uh, compassion-based practice that could help in community. Mm -hmm. and so there was a, you know, it was um, soon thereafter that we began to figure out ways to create an organization that could serve this moment, that could recognize the, um, the great longing um, in culture to um, transform systems that were failing us that were mm. not providing mm -hmm. the same kind of engagement. And uh, so the, the Central Council is um, kind of emerging from that sort of longing. And um, mm -hmm. over the next few years, we looked at ways to really have it be something that could support uh, culture in a, in a more mainstream way than we were able to do with the OI Foundation. And about two years ago, we completed our individuation um, from that, that wonderful place that had been founded by Joan Halifax and that had a long um, tradition of weaving wisdom uh, practices from uh, a number of different uh, cultures that um, have been so generative. Um, you know, the uh, lineage goes way back, but for the time that it was called the Ojai Foundation, um, it really tapped what uh, Joan Halifax had experienced in the civil rights and the anti-war movement with uh, Quakers and others, uh, devout listening, uh, circle-based practices. It tapped uh, some of uh, the extraordinary teachings of the great Sioux Nation. We had a the great privilege of working with great Lakota teachers, uh, Wallace Black Elk and uh, Grace Spotted Eagle, um, Chumash elders, um, local elders, uh, Grandfather Senu and others, as well as people that uh, Joan had known from um, her work with Joseph Campbell, um, Thich Nhat Hanh and Krishnamurti and, and others. And so in weaving all of these uh, wisdom traditions together, uh, we were um, uh, able to kind of codify, I guess that's the word I want, uh, the way of counsel um, as, as a weaving of these ancient practices uh, for um, this uh, moment when they were um, in such great need to uh, nourish mm -hmm. and uh, bring together community. Mm. You've just painted something so rich with that um, intercultural and cross-tradition um, the, where you've been with it, as well as what might inform council in general. I wonder if you could speak to, if we could boil it down to essence, what, what is council and what is common, a common need um, that council provides? Um, you said something about finding voice and also um, it's an invitation to find our collective story. What, what would you say are the common elements that you discovered and that you think might be possibly the common elements for us as humanity um, in council process? Mm, what a beautiful question. Thank you. You know, mm -hmm. I, I believe that at core mm -hmm. uh, council, you know, I, is, is the embodiment of compassion in community. I think that is essentially what it is. And there are so many um, powerful generative practices and they're named so many things. You know, if you grew up in Africa, maybe you encountered Dare or Fambaltak or Ibidaramo from Islamic traditions, um, Layajurga, Diwan, uh, Hebrew traditions, Mogal Hakshabah, if you were in Hawaii, maybe you saw Ho'oporporo. Um, the elders have named these ways of coming together in a good way, many things. Uh, the way of counsel is really, um, an attempt to bring a practice into um, the current uh, culture with five 
basic elements, simple elements. It's not easy, but it actually is, is rather simple, I think, to create this intentional space. You know, we need to work with a circle. We understand, I'm sure many, most of your listeners, I'm sure, have had experience in uh, practices that um, utilize and, and benefit from the circle. We need to know who's there. And so we begin with the circle. In council, there is a center, and the center holds um, that which is common to all of us, our common values, our aspirations, our desires, the concerns that we have for community, and we manifest that symbolically in the center and council. We need to have a way to step in because it needs to be a consensual process that we um, are mindful of the liminality and understand that going from um, you know, the, the pace and the craziness of you know, our, our life outside, this technologically driven, fast-paced um, world, we need to um, step mindfully into a more intentional space. And we also need to know how to navigate stepping away in a good way so that that which comes from this space is not um, taken out into, uh, back into the world in ways that um, leave it vulnerable and leave us vulnerable because of what we may have disclosed or what, we may be, what may be raw in us. In council, essentially, you know, what we look for are these four intentions of listening and speaking from the heart and being spontaneous and being lean. And, you know, I, I think I've found in, in the years that I've been working with this practice in my own life personally on a, in, a, in a very intimate way as well as in groups that the toggle that takes us, you know, from the way we usually listen, the way we listen with a filter, the way we listen with labels, the way we listen and categorize and analyze and decide things about information coming to us before we've even heard based on the speaker, what we understand about them, what we believe or mistrust about them. There's a toggle when we listen from the heart that we do kind of automatically, you know, when a baby cries or when there's beautiful music playing or we, you know, we, we hear a bird chirping or the trees rustling. You know, we, we listen in a way to understand. We listen in a way to, to really be with that sound as opposed to trying to figure out if it's for us or, or against us, if, if it's something that's threatening or something that we need to uh, lean into. Listening in that pure um, non-judgmental way is, uh, is a great practice. Likewise, I think when we speak in such a way that, you know, we're not strategic, we're not planned, we aren't reciting that rote speech about ourselves that we have figured mm -hmm. out is the best way to appear in society because we've been told this is what we should be or what we should say and as a great result of some conditioning that has come to us either deliberately or not through our families, through our culture, through the world in which we live. There's so many mm -hmm. things that, um, you know, that, that uh, kind of edit and um, squeeze the life out of what is alive in us so that we can conform to the story that we tell about ourselves. And if there's a way that we can speak, we can give voice to what is really alive right here in the moment, it may be something very different than mm -hmm. what we thought of ourselves or what we've always said in, in a kind of a automatic knee-jerk response. We may surprise mm -hmm. ourselves. We may find that something is alive in us that's actually quite different. And the generativity of speaking in that way and listening in, um, in the way that I, I just mentioned. It's just so extraordinary, especially when practiced in a, in a group of folks who may have already formed opinions about themselves and others. And mm -hmm. the spontaneity also that is, um, you know, kind of um, fostered when a group is practicing this way uh, is critically important. The one piece of the council work that's very different from some of the indigenous traditions that I mentioned that were part of this is this notion of leanness, that we speak to essence, um, that we understand that there's only so much time for us to be together on this call now or in the classroom before, you know, language arts is over and the bell rings or at, on the uh, prison yard before the correctional officers come in and tell us it's time for count and we have to end our session. You know, these are things that are part of our culture that has made all of these systems function efficiently but often don't give us the time that we need to uh, do the things that feel alive in us. So we try to uh, integrate this work into uh, modern systems you know, like schools and prisons, et cetera, uh, by really um, cultivating the capacity and uh, the facility with speaking just what needs to be spoken. And sometimes there are no words. Maybe it's a sound. Maybe it's, you know, a poem or a song. Uh, but it's not, um, it doesn't have the luxury of uh, the way these ceremonies were practiced 
in cultures where you could do this for four hours or mm -hmm. 17 hours or two days. And sometimes we only have 51 minutes. So. Jared, I want to pause right there and, and stay with this theme that we're in um, and maybe even go back to that space of um, perhaps what is unique about a council process and maybe how that applies to what you've witnessed with inmates in, in particular in a process together. And of course, um, just as with any human beings, some people may not feel like they can speak up or are ready to, but it certainly probably are feeling something deeply within themselves. And I'm not sure how to frame this question, but I would love to hear you speak towards the unspoken, um, if you can, regarding what you might have witnessed in um, certain people finding healing or affirmation and an ability to come out of their own isolation because of what they've heard in the circle, even if they stayed quiet. Yeah. Gosh, thank you for that. That's such a, a rich question, and I, I hope I can, as you say, speak towards it. Um, a couple of things come up for me as you ask this question. Um, I'm um, very uh, honored and pleased to be working a great deal with the Zen Peacemaker Order. Uh, my, my friend and uh, mentor, Bernie Glassman, has led uh, bearing witness retreats um, around the world for 20 years, um, including to Auschwitz, um, where we'll be just uh, next month. Um, the three tenets of the Zen Peacemakers are um, essentially leading with not knowing. Can we enter a space letting go of everything we think we know about that space? Can we really disabuse ourselves of any agenda and any knowing or opinions that we have? Secondly, can we bear witness with every fiber of our body? Can we bear witness deeply to the moment? And in doing that, if we are truly able to, um, to not know and to bear witness, the third tenet is that compassionate action arises. Action arises from that process that is emergent that is a product of this kind of practice. And rather than an intervention that may direct us in one direction or another and may have a doctrine or a spiritual tradition or a particular um, path through which someone has thought, you know, we can find healing, this council process really um, integrates these three tenets, maybe not deliberately. It's certainly uh, not, a, not a product of the Zen Peacemaker Order, although it's used throughout uh, the Zen Peacemaker Order at these very witness retreats. And so there is an, this emergent um, opportunity, this emergent quality in council when it's uh, practiced in places like prisons. And the folks who have been participants in programs that have attempted to offer them healing and methodologies and ways to fix their ills and ways to correct themselves, um, the response that we got along the way as we began building these programs is that, you know, there's always a right answer. And usually you can figure out what it is, and when you get it, you kind of can say it, and people nod, and they are happy with your, the result of uh, their program. But in council, um, the right answer is being with presence and with truth. And what emerges for us often surprises us. And the opportunity to find our own voice and to find that emergent collective wisdom that is a result of a community coming together and practicing in this way is truly transformative and is very new. And it's also unique in settings like corrections where, you know, you want to kind of go in with a strategy and evidence-based, you know, uh, protocols that will um, exact uh, a response. In council, we trust the process and we understand that folks who come together in a good way and practice like this uh, find their emergent voice collectively through the collective wisdom that's only present uh, when the community comes together in this way. Um, and I'll just say that uh, the Bearing Witness retreats that uh, have um, taken the Zen Peacemaker uh, community and, and uh, myself included to places like Auschwitz uh, really ask of us to go to unthinkable places like the selection platform at Auschwitz-Birkenau or like uh, Nidorama Church or Morambi in Rwanda and um, sit in places in which the unthinkable has happened, uh, human catastrophe um, in, in ways that um, you, you can't really imagine until you're there. And bearing witness to that 
and then uh, having an opportunity to uh, have a safe space, to have a, uh, a sacred space, to have an invitation to uh, move into a space that asks of us that we um, allow for and honor the emergent voice is an extraordinary thing to encounter, especially if in the case of Auschwitz you've got folks who are uh, the sons and daughters of Holocaust survivors sitting in a council circle with the descendants of guards from Auschwitz, those who dropped the canisters, you know, in, in the uh, nearby building that you're, you're looking at across the, the field. In Auschwitz, mm -hmm. um, what happens, what is emergent in these sort of councils is uh, truly remarkable um, because we realize that in the moment that the compassion that we feel are sort of abiding um, innate goodness as human beings uh, is not something we take into account when we think we know about the good guys and the bad guys, the us and the them, you know, the victims and the perpetrators. Mm -hmm. The example in Rwanda, which was a result of these bearing witness retreats in uh, Auschwitz, you know, was to um, uh, ask of, uh, of my organization to come and train a, a group of um, NGO workers to uh, be able to learn the council process and uh, offer it up as part of the commemoration of the 20-year anniversary of the genocide. Um, and I spent two weeks with them, and um, what, what developed was really extraordinary. When it was time for the uh, celebration to occur and the Bearing Witness events happened around that with a number of people from around the world coming, the, the space that was held by folks who understood stood the need for uh, healing space, what was um, present there um, you know, enabled unthinkable conversations to happen, enabled a woman who um, you know, was present 21 years ago in a village uh, with her children when the folks from the next village uh, came with the machetes and the clubs, and to describe that experience of what it was like to run with her child, to hide in the marshes, and um, and to see them kind of coming and the, the, the uh, glittering of their machetes as they uh, exacted this extraordinary kind of uh, violence. Um, and then to have her pass the talking piece to somebody who um, had just heard about this for their ability to be with what it, what it is to hear this story mm -hmm. and to know that they weren't there. And then someone else in that circle was able to uh, hold a talking piece and be with what it was to be an American at the time to sort of vaguely know that something was going on in Rwanda, but mm -hmm. it transfixed by, you know, O.J. Simpson driving down the 405, which is what we were all doing mm -hmm. when this was going down 21 years ago, and, and, and how, what, what kind of remorse uh, that person felt in uh, mm -hmm. having uh, missed that opportunity to really bear witness to this at the time. And then finally mm -hmm. the talking piece was passed to um, a gentleman who, um, began his story about that night when he and his fellow villagers were given the machetes and told to run at the town. And he was one of those in the group that uh, sat upon this group of uh, Tutsis in the neighboring village. And as he told the story of the horrors of being um, kind of captured by the devil, he, he said, and how what happened in that night is replayed in nightmares every night for 20 years and the deep sorrow that he feels you know, what happened in that circle was an experience that moved everybody so profoundly and it didn't lead to someone saying, oh gosh, I'm sorry, and someone saying, oh, that's okay, you're forgiven. What it was was a community that was um, committed to being with, bearing witness to great suffering and inviting compassion in the face of that to see how it is that we as a human race can heal and can, you know, leave the world better than we found it. And mm -hmm. the fact that everyone would stay, would listen, would come back, would spend a couple of days really wanting to be with these horrors, I think um, created an opportunity, created a ground to grow um, as um, a community of uh, brothers and sisters that um, are committed to pay attention to one another, are committed to be with the suffering that is in the hearts of all of us, to not... Um, divided into us and them and, you know, um, my, my suffering is worse than your suffering. But all of us have a responsibility to um, be with healing. And that was just mm. an extraordinary experience and um, mm. really ma made me feel like this is a practice that has everything to do with um, true uh, restoration of relationships, restoration of community, 
um, you know, restoration of culture. And so uh, I suppose restorative justice is one way to look at this. Um, it's reconciliation uh, at large, I believe, in, in conditions like that. And I think that the same kind of healing um, is, uh, th there's a longing for the same kind of healing in many uh, situations much closer to home. Um, mm -hmm. The systems that we're observing around us in corrections and uh, in law enforcement and education, in medicine for sure, and certainly in families in which uh, there's a, a lot of trauma that we carry with us and we've never been able to have the courage or feel safe enough to share and to unearth and to bear witness to. I'm going to just um, pause this very rich conversation for just a moment to welcome those of you that are just joining us. This is Restorative Justice on the Rise. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and we are having an extraordinary conversation with Jared Side, who is the Director of Center for Council. If you're tuning in on the podcast, make sure that you check out the iTunes podcast list of all of our speakers in the past from 2011 to present. And we thank you for joining us tonight. And for our live audience and, and circle, actually circle is a better word than audience because this whole point is that you can participate if you would wish, um, pressing one on your telephone keypad for a live question. And also we have some questions that have been submitted on the back end tonight. So we'll be looking at those in just a moment. But Jared, I. I just would, would like to ask you a question that seems fairly simple, but it's so complex as we move into um, this next segment of our time together tonight, and that's why do you think the time is now for council? Why, what, what, are this, what does that mean to you? The time, the timing. Yeah. Why is the time so, now? The other day when you and I were talking, <laughs> about that, you know, that, that just seemed very present, that there's something going mm -hmm. on about the timing here. Of yeah. Well, I guess I would say that, uh, you know, the time is always, and I think now we are kind of waking up to, you know, the great need um, to address this longing that we have. Specifically, the work that we're doing in um, the criminal justice system, um, which I, I might rephrase, I don't love that, expression, I would say, you know, in this moment of transformation of the carceral state, you know, we have an opportunity now um, as we bear witness to the dissolution of this um, deeply toxic and um, unsustainable system. It is, I think, the great social justice issue of our time, civil rights issue of our time. It is uh, something that, uh, of course, disproportionately impacts uh, minorities and economically disadvantaged folks, but um, moreover, I think we have designed a system that begins, I think, with the uh, you know the school to prison pipeline and moves through the justice system uh, into um, you know the uh, conditions of mass incarceration and over incarceration. We have um, designed something that is full of uh, suffering. And the systemic violence, that the sort of collateral impact of a system that causes so much suffering uh, is proving to be intolerable. Whether you see this as conditions for um, the enormous number of inmates who are um, subject or clients of this system and how they uh, endure subhuman conditions and then uh, are cast out um, back into society, into civil society, uh, with less skills and more anger and less ability to self-regulate than they had when they got in, uh, in some kind of, you know, false, uh, you know, imagined sense that there's going to be some kind of success and that they won't recidivate. Um, to those who are administering the system, and I think importantly, to the men and women on the front lines, to the rank and file uh, correctional officers who are forced to um, uh, perpetuate the system and in doing so inflict an enormous amount of suffering on others. When you dehumanize and you degrade another human being, it has an enormous impact on you. And we're finding, in addition to all the things we understand about uh, what's happening inside to, the, um, to those who are imprisoned, you know, in California alone, uh, correctional officers, you know, the average uh, life expectancy is 58. You know, these guys are dying and women too, 
They're dying on the job mm-hmm. of enormous rates of suicide. They are uh, out of control in their um, hypervigilance and their inability to self-regulate. So mm-hmm. the inflammatory diseases that are a result of um, inadequate skills for self-regulation are leading to disease that is truly killing them uh, as they get out. And so the need in this moment to find practices that are compassion-based and help us uh, engender a sense of self-awareness and awareness of others, a cultivation of our ability to regulate our nervous system and to learn ways of communicating and creating relationship through which we can create uh, collaboration and society that is more wholesome and cooperative, that uh, allows our innate goodness to um, be present and allows a kind of, uh, you know, collective wisdom to emerge around how it is that we handle those who have transgressed, those who have paid their debt to society, and those who are starting a new chapter in our communities. Um, so, so Jared, let me, let me just stop you for a moment. Um, I really want to share with our council tonight that um, you, uh, the Center for Council, that is, and uh, of course more information at their website can be found at centerforcouncil, all one word, dot O-R-G, centerforcouncil.org. Um, interesting statistic or information that you shared with me recently, and that's that you are the state of California's largest provider for resilience and wellness skills training, and I believe that's both for correctional officers and for inmates. Is that true? And can you speak more about that, please? Um, I think you already have been, but... (laughs) You know, um, in the last uh, nine months alone, our programs have grown to 14 prisons uh, of the 35 inside uh, California. We expect to double that shortly. And in these 14 prisons, there are 20... Um, participants who are learning uh, the skills of counsel and um, being supported to become carriers of counsel. So these are inmates in mostly maximum security, some medium security facilities, many of them lifers, who um, have self-selected to learn how to carry this practice for themselves and for their brothers and sisters on the prison yards. So in these 14 prisons, there are uh, groups um, each with 20 folks, so that's 280, and they each will be leading groups of other inmates of at least 10. So 2,800 um, inmates will have access to these practices um, by the summertime. And, you know, I think the impact of that is huge. Um, it, it will increase in time. I think what is really remarkable is that in many of these prisons, the staff is beginning to practice in council as well. And as a result of the success of this program and the fact that the uh, correctional officers and the captains on the yard are noticing uh, marked changes in behavior and the attitudes uh, drop in the 115, the reports of uh, uh, problems on the yard and violent incidents. Um, As a result of all that is happening in these programs, uh, we have been approved to be uh, the state's provider of uh, council-based uh, wellness and resiliency skills training for correctional officers. So our mm-hmm. first project uh, is in Soledad, where we will train 60 correctional officers, and uh, the intention is to scale that fivefold again by the summertime. So we are indeed working at a lot of different levels, uh, including the wardens who are meeting in council. And I think I just mentioned to you recently, we have a group of judges in East LA uh, and now being joined by prosecutors who are working in council to be with uh, how it is to be a cog in a really dysfunctional system and how it is that our own, again, I'll use it again, our innate goodness and our ability to, um, you know, allow emergent compassion, how this can really shape um, this system. And the other thing, you know, I'll just say quickly that, you know, I I heard this wonderful uh, metaphor about, I think it comes from Tai Chi or, Qigong or one of the key things. It's this notion of working with energy that you know, a, a boulder, a really heavy boulder is a great challenge to move. And a boulder in motion uh, can be guided and directed. And what we're seeing now in terms of the motion, in terms of the uh, world waking up to um, the uh, imminent transformation and the necessity of being with uh, a system that is falling apart and dissolving gives us a great opportunity. And there is an enormous resolve now uh, across, you know, politics and across cultures 
to um, really attend to the needs of the folks who are on the inside and the folks who are working in the system that is corrections. And, and as all this begins to move and as we are with this dynamic moment where people are you know, really wanting to see the system, the system humanized, uh, um, there's a great opportunity for innovations mm -hmm. and for looking back at things our ancestors knew to do, whether they called it council or they called it Ho'oponopono or they called it Diwanawaya Jirga, our ancestors knew how to do this, knew how to take care of mm -hmm. ourselves and, and our community and our tribe. And I feel like practices like council, and there's so many others out there that are so valuable right now and are really congruent with this moment uh, of great longing in the system to find ways to transition to something more humane. Now, Jared, um, that brings a question up around uh, all this wonderful work that you're doing on this, uh, the correction side of things. And I'm wondering, is there a possibility in the future that, you, that the Center of Council, for Council might venture into the law enforcement side of things and even possibly into the area of uh, perhaps police academy trainings and, and so forth? Yeah. So I think I mentioned to you that I was up in Sacramento yesterday, and uh, one of the conversations was with the, the academy where the cadets are trained. The problem with it has been that those who receive the training in the academy, and this is for correctional officers, but it's also um, reflective of a conversation we've had around police academies, there is a, a sense that um, when you kind of hit the streets or hit the prison yard, the culture is so entrenched that it often kind of, um, you know, it, it kind of hammers out of you a lot of these new practices. Um, so we're looking at a systemic intervention that's happening in places where the culture is just intolerable and at the same time introducing new practices in the academies. And so there are a couple of police forces that have asked us to um, supply the same um, council-based wellness and resiliency skills training uh, that we are innovating in California, and I expect that's going to be an area that will have a, a great deal of, um, of work to do. And I think it doesn't stop there, Molly. I think this is something that is critical in other systems like medicine. And so there's a great mm -hmm. need. Doctors and nurses, for sure, mm -hmm. certainly teachers and many others are finding that uh, the systems that are creating great efficiencies are at the same time dehumanizing, and the impact of working in these systems in which we are faced with some real um, profound moral distress and spiritual distress, distress, I would say, require of us that we have practices that increase our self-awareness and self-regulation, our awareness of our surroundings uh, and mm -hmm. each other to uh, cultivate a, a more compassionate and more wholesome way to, uh, to be with you know, this, this innate goodness and this desire to, uh, to do good. And I think that we'll find more and more uh, application of practices like counsel, and, and I certainly don't want to limit it to counsel because I believe there's so many important practices that um, are part of the great wisdom traditions, but I, I feel like there's mm -hmm. certainly a great deal for us to do with this and, and many others, uh, hopefully many who are, who are listening to this now who are involved with groups that are doing similar things. I personally find this practice of counsel to be incredibly effective and user-friendly and something that can be um, taught as a bunch of skills that uh, are an invitation to create um, a container for what a group mm -hmm. needs to do. And so we have 26 community-based organizations that are also being trained. We're training the staff. Uh, there's 26 uh, CBOs as well as faith-based organizations. And, um, you know, to see what happens when um, an organization like Illumin Men's Group, that is a faith-based organization that um, gathers folks who have uh, a deep abiding commitment in a particular uh, spiritual tradition um, and give them tools like this, the work that they can do in the world, in communities, in doing good works, but also in bringing healing to their families and to their most intimate relationships is really extraordinary and incredibly mm. exciting to me. I feel so honored and, and, and blessed to be able to be in a seat where I can, you know, see the integration of this and, and take part in the weaving. Um, mm -hmm. great, it's a great time. Oh, thank work. you. Well, I would love to um, extend a question that has come off the web, and it's from Tina. Thank you, Tina, for your question. I think it's an important one, um, of course, weaving back in on the topic of stories. And um, she asks, do you have any stories or anecdotes from former inmates about how counsel has impacted their lives on the outside? Mm, yeah. It's a beautiful question. I think that um, 
there are anecdotes and there are stories. You know, I, I have a good friend who spent 29 years incarcerated, 10 of those in solitary confinement, and uh, what he has learned about um, his ability uh, to be a vessel for healing um, is truly inspiring. And his partnership on the outside is critical, along with what we hope will be a real force of folks. We get 20 lifers a month who are being released to Los Angeles. Many of these will have been trained as our programs increase in the tools of counsel. And as we integrate them into the community-based organizations, I feel like their ability to tell their stories is, um, is going to be uh, one of the sort of great untapped uh, assets to the work that we do in communities to bring healing spaces. Um, my own experience has been mostly with folks who are currently incarcerated and uh, their great desire to tell stories that they want to reach the outside world. And just to quickly say that I had a, a period in which I was working one day in a prison and the next day at Malibu High School with eighth graders. And it was a beautiful thing to have the, uh, the lifers inside um, kind of precede my time with the eighth graders. I remember a moment where they really wanted to talk about what it was to be 13. And the story is about, you know, what they would say to their 13-year-old self and, you know, kind of advice they would give and things they wanted folks to remember were things they wanted to be brought to the uh, eighth graders in Malibu. And I had the amazing honor of spending um, a few hours in Malibu the next day sharing these stories of guys on the inside and what they learned and what they understood to be key lessons from um, their, their uh, upbringing, the eighth graders were just wrapped. They were so blown away by wisdom shared by men they will never meet in places they didn't even know existed, but passed on the freeway and, and noticed maybe some concrete along the side of the road. But to hear the, the, the great wisdom you know, spoken to them in ways that I guess elders and you know, older brothers and fathers and, and such and their families hadn't really spoken to them. It was really moving, and they wrote letters, and they were able to express their gratitude. But I had the sense in the moment, Molly, that, you know, there were some folks who were going to be making a great impact on society because of the, um, you know, luck of their birth into um, Malibu. Um, and they, in that moment, through the stories shared by folks who were incarcerated, um, began to really appreciate uh, the um, the great humanity and the great suffering of people who have disappeared, of voices that are typically unheard. What it meant to these small collection of a couple of dozen young men, in this case, um, to really get to know uh, elders um, who were uh, formerly other, um, felt like something that would change their lives. And in opening their hearts, in feeling this sort of empathic connection with people they didn't know had stories, I feel like the lives that they will lead will be more compassionate, will be more connected, will have that seed planted that uh, there are many who are not uh, right in front of you who deserve and um, demand your attention, uh, your witness, and your compassion. And so mm. I think these stories have a great ability to transform society. And uh, I expect that as more and more folks uh, emerge from incarceration, uh, learning these skills and practicing in this way, we'll have more and more stories of what's happening on the outside as they integrate into programs and communities. Mm. Jared, I'd love to hear a bit more, and I'm sure everyone here together tonight also would, about what's coming up for the Center for Counsel um, what events, and I, I did speak to those a bit earlier when we lost you for a moment there, but um, what would you like to make sure people know about as far as how to reach Center for Counsel locally, and also anything that you want to make sure we know about regarding upcoming um, events and, and trainings? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, again, I, I just can't um, express enough my gratitude to you, Molly, and to the community that has emerged around you. And I also note that it is a co-arising and that there are communities um, certainly around our region and around the world who are longing and who are reaching for practices. And the more uh, we lean in and we create uh, compassionate communities, we manifest you know, what uh, Martin Luther King called you know, beloved community together, the more resources we will have to be with this really extraordinary moment of uh, shifting of systems. Um, council, I think, is a very powerful tool 
there's a book called The Way of Counsel that is available to folks written by uh, my mentor, Jack Zimmerman, who is the uh, mm -hmm. director of the uh, BLI Foundation and Gigi Coyle. Um, there is the Center for Counsel, uh, which is based in Los Angeles and offers public trainings in counsel to folks who want to look us up. There are uh, counsel trainings that are hosted around the country, and there's always opportunity for uh, uh, our trainers, uh, of which there are 70 currently certified um, in the way of counsel, uh, to come out and, and offer trainings in a number of places. And I think we talked that there are some um, that are upcoming in the, um, in the Southwest. Um, but I think right now our focus is on looking at organizations and institutions in which we can, either through grant funding or through policymakers who are seeing the need for this, like some of the senators in California, we can begin to integrate these practices um, to keep our folks uh, more resilient and to bring wellness practices, uh, neuroscience-based skills practices that help us stay healthy. There are biometrics around this. We understand that when we practice in this way, whether it's coming together in council and community or even having a contemplative practice like meditation or yoga or being in nature, um, our physiology gets better. You know, there's less mm -hmm. cortisol secreted by our adrenals. We have the capacity to live longer, healthier lives. And because that's the case, we are able to make the case to prison systems, to education systems, to hospitals and medical systems uh, that we need programs and we need practices like this. And so I am a great advocate and I hope that um, many of your listeners will continue to advocate for these ways. And if we can be of service in providing something mm -hmm. that's council-based or maybe just uh, be a connector with others who are providing services uh, in the region where you are, I think now is the time to come forward with uh, compassion-based practices that enable us to access these skills this good medicine for um, mm -hmm. you know, being in a compassionate space with, um, uh, with moments of, of, uh, of real great suffering as these systems dissolve. Um, so please visit you know, the website and uh, we can always use the support of folks. The more you lean in and the more you join our conversation and we join your conversation, you know, again, what a great opportunity. Thank you again for this. Uh, the more we can support each other and the more we can... Mm -hmm create an uh, emergent field where we understand that together um, something uh, inevitable uh, develops and we can celebrate that and we can find ways to uh, foster these green shoots that are creating um, really wholesome and generative uh, practices that, that foster this resilience and this creative uh, collective wisdom. So, um, you know, lean in, I guess, is my, is my um, mm -hmm. invitation. Uh, reach mm -hmm. us through our website and uh, come learn about council and uh, go back to your own practices and, uh, you know, the, the, the Gandhi sort of uh, admonition that, uh, that has been misquoted so much is really that this idea that if we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change, you know, as a man changes his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change towards him. And I believe this is the case, and I believe we have a lot to do, and it starts with us. And Jared, on that note, to close out this wonderful hour that we've had the honor of having with you and each of us together tonight, what inspires you um, to wake up every day and share your life with others in the way that you do? What would you like to leave people with tonight in that way? Yeah. Um, I think the experience of um, deep interconnection. You know, I, I have found myself in situations I never expected to be. And when I look up and I hear someone tell my story, to share my grief, to uh, shed my tears, and I realize that, you know, that we're all deeply, deeply connected, it feels so powerful and it feels so affirming. And I think practices that... Um, yeah, that give us an opportunity to embody interconnectedness are things that uh, become so generative to us. It certainly has for me. And I'm, I'm deeply grateful to have found a practice that uh, enables me to be with that oneness, with that interconnectedness. And uh, I'm so excited at this time that there is an opportunity for us to um, uh, expand this work and see these practices emerge for a society that needs it. Um, so deeply to be with the um, to be with the suffering and to be um, a vehicle for fostering 
uh, resilience and uh, flourishing. Um, and thank you so much, Molly, for providing this opportunity for having this ongoing conversation and for including me in it. Mm. Well, it's just been my honor to host you tonight, Jared, and on behalf of the circle present, thank you so much for being a part of Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is an ongoing dialogue series, and of course we continue on next week. But before I share a few last words this evening about that, I just want to remind you to please check out, if you haven't already, centerforcouncil.org. There's some extraordinary media pieces. There's a 10-minute video that features dialogue and council process with some inmates in, um, I believe, the Soledad Prison, the uh, Salinas Valley State Prison, that is. And uh, it's quite moving. Um, pass that along. Share it out. It's right there at the homepage at centerforcouncil.org. And again, just a, a very heartfelt thanks to Jared Side tonight, Director of Center for Council, for conversing with us and sharing so deeply. Um, please join us next week as we host um, an international guest from the UK. That's um, going to be next Thursday at a different time. It's going to be at um, excuse me at 11 a.m. Pacific time with Ian Martyr, who is the um, found, co-founder of the Center for Restorative Researchers, and he's going to provide us a wonderful update on the international scope of restorative practices. So once again, with heartfelt thanks for your participation, please go to restorativejusticeontherise.org and pass along this podcast of our conversation with Jared Side of the Center for Counsel. Good night, everyone, and thank you.